Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The person that sees how a narcissist behaves and doesn't raise any red flags, that means the trauma is already in there. So if you find yourself dating someone like this, the fact that you were drawn to them, the fact that your nervous system finds familiarity and comfort in the craziness and the lack of prioritization, that's the really concerning part. So I wouldn't say that, like, aside from the physical assaults, dating them didn't do much damage. It was just, it was a representation of the damage that had already been done. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline 
in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. Do you have a narcissist coming for Christmas? Are you in a relationship with one? Or maybe you're recovering from being in a relationship with a narcissist. Whilst narcissists can be overtly abusive, angry and obvious, there is often an insidious nature surrounding the narcissist in our lives. I've definitely been involved with some narcissists over the years and the covert narcissist's abuse can infiltrate the very fabric of a person's reality. They can bring others into their web who believe the charade being played out before them and who can end up aligning themselves with the narcissist without knowing any better. This individual is so skilled at hiding their true fragmented self, they very seldom get caught out and they can definitely destroy lives. This week, I'm chatting with Sarah Riley. Sarah is an international performance coach for leaders who want to become untouchable. She is the coach for breaking the limitations of your current reality and mastering your inner game. Sarah grew up with a narcissistic mother and she was also in a relationship with a narcissist. So she has a huge amount of wisdom and insight to share on this personality disorder. Please join me for this very insightful chat. Sarah, we're going to chat today about growing up with a narcissistic parent and the beliefs that you might end up with as a result of being the child of a narcissist. And you have firsthand experience of this. Can you give us a bit of an insight into when you're a little kid and your first memories and what are your feelings in the world when you've got a parent that's a narcissist? Yeah, that's a pretty broad question. I can kind of give a bit of an overview. Part of the reason this topic is so valuable is that narcissistic abuse is really insidious and almost hard to pinpoint if you haven't experienced it. So it can it can seem very sort of, you know, non-invasive or, you know, because it doesn't typically involve physical beatings or anything like that. It's hard to kind of get it across. But I will tell you, one of the things that I always thought was kind of normal and didn't find out that it wasn't normal until I got a lot older is the lack of contact, right? Like the lack of physical contact, the lack of um, permission to just be yourself and move spontaneously and sort of feel out the world around you, right? You're always kind of on high alert when the parent has some kind of disorder. They sort of, with narcs in particular, they don't um, sort of, they're not able to take responsibility for themselves and their emotions. And so the child gets parentified, like it becomes your responsibility to kind of emotionally manage the parent. And so when you, if you say like, how was your childhood and how were you feeling as a kid? Very on edge, very fearful, very alone. Um, and it's funny, like for many people who had rough childhoods for the longest time, I think many of us just sort of accept the fact that that's how things are. Like it just, well, it just was like that, or that's just how life was. And it's not until you get older and you maybe recount some stories or some memories to friends and they sort of look horrified. Like, for example, my mother was a chain smoker and um, so we weren't allowed near her a lot of the time. And that was ostensibly because, oh, because of all the smoke. But then you realize that it's been years and years and years and you've just never been allowed to even sit next to your parent, right? So it's just oh. kind of like strange stuff like that. You don't, you're not allowed to sit next to them. They won't eat with you. They make it very clear that you are a bother, a burden, you are a chore. It's, uh, you know, they 
they are the good one for having to manage or support you and you are just something that is not good enough, troublesome, in the way, or awful, awful was the word used with me. Wow. And do you know if your mother's parenting was similar? Was, was she coming from a, a family where she didn't get much contact or love as um, well? Uh, yes and no. No, as in my grandmother, her mother was not disordered in that way. And she has a sister and two brothers and all of them came out just the best people you'll ever meet. Like the most kind and loving, just do anything for anyone kind of people I am in awe of what good people they are. But, you know, narcissism usually develops in the formative years when the system perceives that it is not going to get its needs met. And it starts to live from the idea of I have to prioritize me. I've got to get my needs met. I'm not getting what I need. And it kind of cancels out, you know, empathy and care for other people. And it's just this constant need to get your, get your own. Right. And so I, you know, I heard a few stories about when she was younger and there were times when she needed support and a parent wasn't there or when she behaved badly and the parent um, reacted in like in a way of sort of emotionally cutting her off. So I can guess that there were moments in her early formative years where that particular thing snapped, but it wasn't like that was the entire situation in the house for everybody. Because I'm assuming that that sort of thing happens to lots of kids and they don't become a narcissist. So is, is narcissism a, a genetic disorder or is it just something you develop or why does somebody end up being a narcissist? Well, it's not understood to be genetic. It is essentially at some point in the formative years, the system perceives that it will not get its needs met. And so because that comes down to the individual perception of the child, not necessarily the parent, it's not something that can be completely guarded against. Because the bottom line is the, like in your whole childhood, it's not possible for even the most loving parent to do exactly what the child wants 24 hours a day. At some point, the parent being human, may turn away from the child, may not be able to be present with the child, you know, whatever. And this is when I'm doing coaching and trauma recovery with people. One of the things that is most sort of interesting to me is people thinking that all childhood trauma is, you know, overt and can be guarded against when really trauma is just the misperception or the perception of disconnection, right? In the moment I have done something or something has happened and I have lost connection with my support system. So if you look at that as the definition for trauma, everybody has it in some way or another. Everyone has sort of learned in their childhood that something I do causes me to be rejected or not held or, you know, whatever, which is why you have, you know, in a household, several siblings will be fine because they haven't perceived the action in that way. And one child comes out a narcissist because they perceived it that way. And whilst it's not generally understood to be genetic, the impact on the children of narcissists means that children can go either way. Um, I've coached young people where one twin goes the narcissistic way and the other one goes the codependent way. In some families, uh, some people don't go the narcissistic way, but they go the sort of indignant way. Um, and then there was like myself, I went the codependent way. I was the older child. So I was the one who sort of shouldered a lot of the initial emotional responsibility. And so I went the codependent route and that took a long time to get away from the idea that I'm responsible for everything and everyone around me. So yeah. not genetic, but, but people, you know, the methods of coping around it can vary down several different paths. 
Yeah, right. And so if we are not sure if somebody is a narcissist, how do we spot somebody who is a narcissist? I'm not in favour of blanket diagnosing just because the term narcissist is so overused these days. People tend to use it for anyone who they're annoyed at, who isn't doing what they want or who is more focused on themselves than on the person who wants the attention at the time, right? And so I... I'm not a fan of uh, blanket diagnosing. Narcissism as a personality disorder has a diagnostic criteria under the DSM-5. So you can look it up. There are nine diagnostic criteria around needing constant validation and inability to be empathic towards other people, et cetera, et cetera. I think you need five out of nine to qualify last time I checked. But narcissism is a spectrum disorder and everyone is somewhere on the spectrum. Right. Most of us are down, I would say, you know, in the, in the first quarter where we have enough of it that we'll sort of look out for ourselves, but, you know, not so much of it that it becomes detrimental. And then if you're way up far right end of the, of the spectrum, then when it crosses over into disorder territory, then you're at the point where there's some debate in the in the online space about whether it can be cured. It depends who you're listening to, but at this point in time, it has not been successfully or repeatedly cured in any capacity. So for those people, it's less about diagnosing and more about looking out for warning signs and red flags that are personally detrimental to you. It's not about, do I have the correct diagnosis? Is this person definitely a narcissist? It's how do you feel when you're with them? Are you taken care of appropriately? Are they, you know, able to show empathy and support you uh, when you need it are they people have their own personal red flags and i think it's more important about rather than trying to establish that the person is bad simply looking at how they make you feel and how you are around them and i think that kind of goes for almost everybody i was talking to a client the other day about the idea that someone doesn't have to be bad for example for you to break up with them like in a relationship if that person is not right for you you don't have to justify and rationalize and try and figure out are they a bad person do they have a clinical diagnosis if they're not right for you then move away and it's sort of the same with this situation with narcs are you always on eggshells around this person does this person not support you when you're succeeding or, or sort of you know hold you up when you're when you're crushed are they not able to engage with you in a normal emotional way? Are you scared around them? If, a, some, if somebody has red flags, that's your cue to check out, regardless of whether they come with an official diagnosis. Right. And so what's the difference between a narcissist and a psychopath? Because when I look at those two things, there's so many similarities. Well, there's similarities because narcissism is one third of the psychopathy triad, right? So basically, a sociopath is someone that doesn't have um, fully functioning empathy and therefore cannot, you know, emotionally attach to other people and, and has the psychopathy triad includes Machiavellianism and, and, you know, it's, it's a malevolent state, but with a narcissist, oh, man, this is, this is a, this is a convoluted sort of a topic because there's so many different sort of opinions, but generally where I leave it is just that narcissism is one third of the psychopathy triad. Narcissists don't have empathy either. And depending on what kind of narcissist you're dealing with, they can be equally malevolent. So the key is to just keep out of the firing line. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds like good advice. 
Does the narcissist know that they're a narcissist? Do they understand um, that there's something about them or are they unaware? It depends which one you're talking to. It depends on the person very individually. I've met some who have some understanding of it, but one trait of narcissism is that they're not capable of taking responsibility for themselves or their actions. They're not able to process themselves as the problem or at fault. So generally, no, they're not going to understand that they are the problem in a situation. But having said that, I have seen and also engaged with narcissists where if you confront them with this information, they will, if they can cognitively understand it, they may try to negotiate with it. So you get the feeling that they get it, but they still won't admit that they sort of stand out as the bad thing or as the thing that has any fault or responsibility or any need to adjust their behavior. So it depends. It depends heavily. I've interacted with many of them. I have obviously been raised by one and uh, dated them, unfortunately. Definitely don't recommend that. But yeah, it depends on the person. Depends on the person. But it is possible though. Yes and no. I think you would get a lot of argument in the psychological community around the idea that can they cognitively understand it? Yes, many narcissists are highly intelligent, but can they fully absorb the consequences of it? Can they understand the impact of it? Can they process what it means? And in that case, I have seen personally a lot of variance. So it's, yeah, it depends how you interpret the question. You said before that you can't cure a narcissist. But it's not currently repeatably cured, but there is some debate in the, well, there's some amazing research going on in the field of trauma. And so if you understand that these disorders typically are a response to trauma, when we get better at healing and moving trauma, we will inevitably get better at shifting the resulting disorders. So I see a lot of hope in the psychological field, but I want to be clear that that doesn't mean that any narcissist can get better or will. And for anyone out there who is trying to interact with a narcissist or is attempting to date one, um, I want to make sure they understand, even if it gets to the point where this can be cured, it is not your responsibility to cure them, right? So it's not for like, oh, well, they might get better. They will not get better spontaneously. And no one can get better from anything until they recognize that something is problematic or unsustainable. So if they're not in a place where they recognize that what they're doing is completely unsustainable and they're prepared to put their money where their mouth is with regard to seeking help and treatment, it's a total no still. Right. And so are there certain people that are more likely to be targeted by the narcissist? Mm, Overgivers. <laughs> um, codependents, overgivers, people pleasers, and anyone that has sufficient gaps in their self worth that they make easy targets for narcissistic techniques such as triangulation and um, love bombing. Love bombing is where they usually pour it on pretty thick at the start of a relationship, and anyone who needs that external validation is an easier target for this. Also, anyone who experienced, just to use a blanket term, sort of disordered love and connection growing up who doesn't necessarily recognize the red flags. So that's what, that's what my issue was at the start is that the first time I dated a narcissist, no red flags were peaked in me because I had only ever known human connection as difficult, abusive, frustrating, inappropriate, treading all over my boundaries, no personal sovereignty. So when this person decided to act like this, it raised no flags within me. So I was absolutely a prime target. Wow. So 
How far into that relationship did you start to sort of understand that it wasn't healthy? On that first round, I hadn't done my own recovery yet. So there never really came a point where I was like, oh, this isn't good and I would like better. I didn't know that. I was still in my early 20s and there was no understanding in my entire nervous system that anything could be better for me because one of the hallmarks of narcissism is they just, this sounds really dramatic, but they... They destroy you from the soul out. You come out of that home understanding that you are nothing, that you are worse than nothing, that you are a burden and you've got to fight for every crumb that you get. So in that first time I dated a narcissist, I, we never hit a point where we never hit a personal limit where I was like, oh, this is bad. But he got so violent that I was forced to leave because there's only so much, you know, physical assault you can take before you have to do something. So yeah, I guess... I don't want to say I was lucky that he went so bad so fast, but if he had drawn it out over several years, then I suppose that would have been worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are the most common ways that narcissists will try and manipulate? You talked about love bombing and what is triangulation? Triangulation is when they enroll other people in their sort of manipulation and, and bring down of the target so that the person gets the idea that they don't uh, have any type of support system, that everyone understands that they're the bad one or the wrong one. So my mother used to do this with my grandmother. She would say, yes, well, Nana and I are both very disappointed in you for this. Right? Now, I obviously found out later that Nana was not at all disappointed <laughs> in me about that. So invariably, that kind of stuff is a lie. And I have a course that I put out called Navigating the Narcissist that teaches people how to manage the manipulation techniques and also how to communicate in such a way that you can get in and out of interactions with narcissists safely. And I reference this in the section on triangulation because it's you need to apply a really shrewd eye to everything a narcissist says. So you want to ask yourself really, it seems obvious, but it's not in the moment. Questions like, have I ever had a problem with this person before? Are they the type to speak about me behind my back like that? Does it make sense that this would be going on? Like you really want to like take a really skeptical eye to everything that's being said, because the point is to isolate the target and triangulation is a really effective way to do that. Yeah. So there's three types of beliefs that we can end up getting from having a narcissist in our life. Let's have a look at them. Infinite. <laughs> there's, there's oh, okay. Infinite, terrible and misunderstandings about yourself that you can have coming out the back end of a relationship with a narcissist. But the three that I propose to you are kind of like generalized summary ones. And I think most people's understanding of themselves and how the world works will fall under these as kind of umbrellas. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Okay. So the first one is you are alone. Yeah. 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 Something that I grew up understanding intrinsically was that I was completely alone, that I could not rely on anyone to support me, to back me up, to care about me, to understand me or anything like that. Like I didn't have support at all. So if I was sick, I couldn't guarantee that anyone would help me. If I was upset, I couldn't guarantee that anyone would care. And it just sort of goes on. You have this understanding that if they do anything for you, one, they're building debt. So you're going to owe them later, which is like just the worst. So it, it makes it really hard to receive as an adult because you have this kind of like understanding that someone is building a credit line in your name. So yeah, you can't, you don't have anyone, you can't rely on anyone. And it's just a case of, if you want something, you're going to have to make it happen yourself. Things won't just be done spontaneously for you. You can't just relax and know that things will be okay. Because if you're in a house with a narcissist, there is no guarantee that anything will be okay at any point. Right. So when 
you're a kid and you're sick and you don't know if anyone's, or you, you just assume no one's going to help you. What, what is that? What does that make you as a person? It must make you very self-reliant and strong, but what else does it? It makes you extremely self-reliant, but as anyone in the mental health field knows, extreme self-reliance is a trauma response because human beings are a herd species. We are designed to be connected all the time. Yeah, how does it make you as a person? Extreme self-reliance is correct, but the other side of that coin is that we learn how to parent from our from the first example. And so what happens is we tend to, without meaning to, emulate them and we parent ourselves the way we were parented. So for example, I got uh, a pretty severe type of food poisoning. I don't know what the official diagnosis was because I wasn't medically treated for it, but basically I couldn't walk for three weeks. I was bedridden for three weeks. And anytime I stood up, um, I had no sensation of falling, but the floor would just slam me really hard in the side. And I, that's how I knew I had fallen. And so I would crawl myself back into bed. And if I ever called for anything, if she came, it would be stomping up the hallway and very annoyed to have her daytime TV interrupted. And I would say, can I just have some water? And she would be like, oh, with the big sigh. And it was always such a huge burden. And so I remember the pain at one point got so bad that I was literally on, I must've been trying to get to the bathroom because I remember I was on the floor of the lounge on my hands and knees just screaming I wrote a blog post about this recently actually and many people found it quite disturbing and I think that's one of the things you know with your childhood you're like oh that's just how it was and you don't realize that it was bad until somebody was like that's actually pretty awful neglect and I remember I was on my hands and knees screaming into the carpet in pain it was the most brutal pain and I remember her standing over me going well it might be a blockage she probably needs an ambulance and, you know, my Nana was nodding and, and then she goes, mm, but the ambulance fee is $75 now. Let's just wait and just oh let me the floor screaming. And what's funny or funny is probably the wrong word, but now even after all the years that I've done a trauma recovery and I'm actually in a really good position now, I help other people through this and I am in like, I'm so much happier and healthier and my self-worth is great. But even now I, a couple of months ago, I came down with an autoimmune condition. And my whole body broke out in what appeared to be like what looked like chemical burns. My whole, and I was so swollen. The edema was like two inches deep in my skin. You couldn't touch me anywhere without it turning into hematomas. And my whole body was just completely broken out. The itching was insane. I was purple in places. The marks were migrating around my body by the hour and my uh, the lymph nodes, occipital lymph nodes by my head swelled up so much I couldn't turn my head. And it was horrific. Oh. And I yeah. didn't take myself to the doctor that whole week. Six <gasps> days of that went by until my housemate absolutely lost her rag and made me go to the doctor. And of course, the doctor sent me straight to the emergency department. She was like, you're in, you know, this is the kind of shit that leads to anaphylactic shock. And I remember sitting in the ER and I suddenly realized that was another one in a blind spot where I had parented myself the way that I was parented. My body desperately needed medical attention. And my system's default at some level is still, no, you're fine. Just keep working. So is that what you're thinking to yourself that I'm fine? You're it's just, just, you're working from the presumption that you don't matter. The underlying yes. assumption, the underlying fundamental piece of information that impacts all of this is ultimately you don't matter. You don't warrant time. You don't warrant expense. You don't warrant care. 
And so what happens is you find yourself, or at least for me, making jokes about it, just sort of being like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll, it'll come down. It's just, I must have accidentally had some gluten, you know, because I have uh, an allergy to that and I usually come up in hives. So I was like, oh, I must have just eaten contaminated food and it's fine. And yeah, until it's not fine. But I tell you what, that was, you know, you get the lesson until you get the lesson. And that was definitely the last time. That was the, like, that was... That was the last time I let it get that bad without getting medical attention ever again. But it was just, it was just an important reminder, you know, that if you, you know, when you're not doing your trauma recovery consistently, I do my personal development consistently, but I hadn't looked into that aspect in a while. And it just came back to boot me in the ass one more time and just make sure I've really got it. You can't just, you can't just parent nicely. You also have to take care. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. So even when you do work on something like that, you have to keep doing the work. Is that what you, you're saying? You can't just do it once. Your personal progress and evolution is a lifelong thing, right? Like that's what you're on the planet for. You didn't actually just, you don't come to the planet to like get a job and tick off tasks and pay bills and all the rest of it. You come here for the evolution of your soul and everything else is kind of a distraction. Whereas people tend to look at personal development and self-care as something they need to tick off quickly so that they can be fixed and ultimately so they can get back to work. They're like, oh, well, I've got this, you know, anxiety problem. I just need to get rid of it so that I can get back to work. It's like, no, if your nervous system is screaming threat response every day, then you need to work on healing you. And it probably doesn't want to go to work, which is a legitimate response. So yeah. I've got a whole other tangent on why most anxiety is diagnosed. So I won't, I won't ruin this podcast interview with a complete tangent there. But yeah. We'll do another podcast on anxiety one day. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite topics. Yes. Is it? Oh, okay. So the second one was that nothing you do is good enough. That's yeah. the second belief. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, narcissists are impossible to please. They don't, they don't feel happiness or joy the same way that we do, right? The closest they get to that is probably like a high or a power surge that they get from causing distress or being able to control other people. So the idea, like, when you're a kid, your system is on high alert for what makes the parent appear happy and what makes the parent turn away from you. Because from a survival perspective, things that please the food giver is a good way to stay alive longer. And things that displease the food giver is a good way to get yourself ostracized from the tribe. So in a primal setting, you're, like, your system is always looking for what pleases the, the adult. But it becomes very clear very soon that you can't do that with a narc. The thing is, if they are feeling, if they're on a high, because they've managed to get narcissistic supply, which is that, that sort of power surge they get from being able to control or dominate or hurt, then they might be pouring it on thick. Or if they're love bombing, they might be pouring it on thick. But none of it is genuine happiness and none of it is controllable by you. So you start to learn that it doesn't matter how good I am, how, how hard I try, it just, it doesn't matter. They're never going to be pleased. And even when you think you've absolutely nailed it, it's still that's probably when they're going to shit on it the hardest just to make sure they put you back in your place. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And the third one was there's no point in trying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, nothing's good enough and there's no point in trying. So the harder you try the more you attempt, all you're really doing is wiring into your system that this sort of idea that you're stuck on, that if I can just be good enough, if I can just do enough, if I can just give enough, if I can just be perfect enough, if I can just fix all these problems, then I'll get my needs met. And the frustrating thing about this is is that you get caught in this loop of giving to get, and you can't do that. Like giving and receiving are, are different energies. And so if you're always in the giving, you're never receiving. Yeah, right. If someone's listening to this now and they're living with a narcissist, what can you do to maintain your sanity if you can't really leave somebody or get out of their life? Yeah. So there are ways to, well, first of all, you want to be across the manipulation techniques so that you can make yourself less of an easy target. So I highly recommend either taking a course in it or working with a coach or Googling common manipulation techniques of narcissists. I'm sure you can, there's probably plenty online and getting to really understand what does gaslighting mean? For example, having your sanity constantly questioned and having your reality questioned to make you doubt yourself. What does this kind of stuff look like? You know, the constant lying, the triangulation. Okay, so the point is that they pour it on thick when they are happy with you or when they want something from you, and then they devalue you as soon as you are not important to them. And if your system is reliant on their approval, then this will break you over time. So step one, get really across what the manipulation techniques are. As an underlying understanding, you you need to get that if they if they do have the disorder, if they're that far up the spectrum, and I'm not looking to diagnose anybody's partner and they shouldn't either, but if if they have it, they're not going to get better. The hardest thing for people to understand is they're they're not first of all, they're not gonna get cured spontaneously. There is no amount of stuff you can do for them or give them or buy them or say to them that will make any difference. So you have to understand that if you're choosing to stay, you are choosing for it to be like this and progressively worse for the rest of your life. And I know that sounds really harsh, but they, narcissists don't mellow as they get older, they get nastier. They get more aggressive. They get more actively nasty. They get more hurtful. They seem to have less to lose. So it's going to get worse. You need to understand that. Oh, and you want to understand communication with a narcissist is different from communication with the same person. So what I mean by that is narcissists don't deal in, without functioning empathy, they can't deal in emotions, right? So you explaining how stuff makes you feel or including emotion in the discussion or using emotion as part of the leverage or negotiations will get you nowhere. Trying to bond through typical communication will get you nowhere because they don't operate like that either. So it comes down to, there's a few good techniques. For one thing, you want to start going gray rock with detail because when they ask you how you are or what's going on with you, they're not interested in your well-being or, or literally what's going on with you. They're just building ammo. They're just storing information to be used against you later. So you want to get into the habit of going gray rock, which is to keep your responses short and boring, as boring as a gray rock, which is where the term comes from. 
So rather than, you know, if they say, what are you up to this weekend, rather than pouring out the, all the failings of your love life this week, I would recommend just responding with laundry, for example. Basically nothing they can use. So removing the emotional quotient, removing the, you know, details that they can use against you. And also just, I highly recommend doing your own personal work on the aspects of yourself that make you an easy target. Like if you're the type to need your validation externally, if you have self-worth issues, if you have, if you work from the understanding that things are either going to get worse or that they're not going to be good for you, or if you're just, you know, working from these sort of understandings about life as bad and you find yourself clinging to external things to keep you going, you want to heal that because narcissists are going to take advantage of that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. What kind of self-care do you think we can use to recover from a narcissist? I'm glad you asked that because I have some tough love on that. Many people think of self-care as bubble baths and incense sticks and Netflix binges and ice cream and stuff. And those things don't actually fall under the category of self-care truly. They're more under the category of self-indulgence. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That is like, they're wonderful as well. Do those as well. Yeah. But don't confuse self-indulgence with self-care. True self-care is really reparenting. It's basically making sure that you are getting what you need to thrive. Are you eating properly? Are you hydrated? Are you making sure that your sleep quality is good? Are you parenting yourself in such a way that you are taking yourself away from bullies? Are you protecting yourself from people who seek to harm you? Are you making sure that you're getting sunlight each day? Are you you know, getting the medical care that you need? Are you supplementing in the areas that your system doesn't store well, like iron or things like that? Are you, do you have someone in your corner to talk to? Do you have someone to help you untangle what's going on in your head and see sunlight again? Are you actually taking epic care of yourself to give yourself the best chance of having that best life? Are you supported? Are you heard? Do you spend time in your own body, present with your own feelings? Do you hear you? Because for the most part, people who feel the most unseen, unheard, and ununderstood are the people who are not giving themselves that time. They're engaging in a lot of self-abandonment, like endless scrolling and using food for dopamine and Netflix binges and all that stuff. And then calling those Netflix binges self-care, which is like a deeply ironic circuit. <laughs> right. So how do you think that the relationships that you've had with narcissists have affected you today? You said before you've had a couple of relapses into not looking after yourself. What other things, positive or negative, have come out of it, do you think? Well, I mean, I have to be honest, they didn't do a lot for my perception of men. Thankfully, I am, you know, I do a lot of work on that with my own coaches regularly. So that's not one that has kind of got its claws in, but I will say it didn't help. Being physically assaulted does tend to, you know, leave a bit of programming in your system around, you know, your danger danger levels and stuff like that so I would say that dating them didn't do nearly as much damage as being raised by them just because I obviously wasn't dating in my formative years so the thing about dating narcissists is that it is a manifestation of an underlying self-worth issue as in it's not the problem it's a representation of the problem it's a manifestation of the problem right because the person that sees how a narcissist behaves and doesn't raise any red flags that means the trauma is already in there. So if you find yourself dating someone like this, the fact that you were drawn to them, the fact that your nervous system finds familiarity and comfort in the craziness and the lack of prioritization, 
that's like that's the really concerning part so i wouldn't say that like aside from the physical assaults dating them didn't do much damage it was just a it was a representation of the damage that had already been done now having said that that's not the case for everybody i also know people that have attempted to date them for 10 20 years and have been absolutely epically destroyed so if you choose to stay there you do so very much at your own risk and why do people stay that long do you think is it just complete lack of any kind of self-worth or self-love yeah it's not it's not that simple but that will be a contributing factor the thing is if you fundamentally don't believe that you are worthy of care and prioritization and support and you know good deep conversation and being seen and being heard and having your boundaries respected if you fundamentally don't believe you're worth that then a narcissist will fit beautifully into your plan right so, yeah, so you will be attracted to people like that because the specs that you are radiating with regard to the frequency that you're on, you're like, I don't deserve to be taken care of and my standards and boundaries are not important. So then we welcome in someone who reflects that. Yes. And so what's your relationship like with your mum now? Mm. Well, I will be honest about this because people who have also been through this will find this kind of hilarious. I started setting boundaries, like an official boundary. Basically what I said was, I'm happy to maintain contact with you, but if you send any form of abuse, any just spoiling for a fight, any manipulation, anything that is like harmful to me, I will not respond. And I set that boundary and I, it's, you can't really say you held it, but so basically anytime she messaged me, I would respond and it would be cordial for two to three messages back and forth. That's about as long as she can last before she sends me a massive novel length set of abuse about what a horrific person I am. And then I would, as per my threat, I would not respond. And so we would not talk for several weeks. And then she would message again with something kinder and I would respond mistakenly thinking that I could reinforce the positive and, you know, maintain the, uh, the relationship. And it would go fine for two or three messages. And then I would hear again about how I was the absolute spawn of Satan and just the worst person to ever exist. And I would not respond. And then, and the thing is this went on. And because I remember what house I was living in when I first started these boundaries, I can tell you, honestly, this went on for five years. Oh, for wow. Five, for five years, she never made the connection that I was not going to engage in the abuse. So here's the thing. You can't get a narcissist to understand your feelings or care about them because they're missing empathy. However, most narcissists do understand basic cause and effect. So if you deal in absolutes and undeniable concepts, if you do this, this will happen and then carry that out, many of them can still learn. Many of them have sufficient cognitive function to recognize when I act like this, it doesn't work for me. When I do this, they do what I want, but not all of them. And so test this theory, please don't do it. I didn't test it for five years because it was a really like stressful five years, I'll tell you. And it just got to the point where I was like, Sarah, you have to acknowledge that it's not working. And so, you know, you're holding the boundary and it's not, it's achieving nothing, it's not getting it. So I engaged for the last time and I got a big, big message, just a mixture of abuse and some thinly veiled threats. And the threats are very real, like with, I mean, I can't speak for everybody's narcissist, but the threats have been carried out in the past. People I know have been assaulted because of things she's set up. 
So the, the threats are very real. So when the threats come through, you have to take them seriously. So, a, you know, a terrible message came through with a bunch of threats and a bunch of really manipulative language. And I was like, I have to be a better parent to myself because at the moment I am letting stuff into my world that hurts my nervous system. And that is not like, that's you just replicating her. You're being the same crap parent. So practice what you preach. And I cut it off. And so I blocked her about a year ago. And on the day you do it, for anyone who's thinking about doing it, on the day you do it, it is kind of like being hit by a truck. Um, it is just the worst because your nervous system is designed to bond to your tribe and you bond chemically and you bond strong. And so anytime somebody has to separate from a parent, you're going to feel it that day. Don't think that it's just going to be nothing and you're going to be happy. And I say that not to make people think it's going to be bad, but to say, give yourself the space and the care that week, like take the day off to do this because there will be panic. There will be tears, there will be pain and it will be, it's like a chemical divorce in the system. Yeah. And then, for all the time afterwards, not having your nervous system assaulted by someone who means to do you harm is absolutely blissful and you will actually start to really heal, like heal in the body. Because, you know, when you have panic and anxiety and stuff in the body from having a threat in your orbit for a long time, you don't realize how much the panic really hurts. I used to have really terrible chest pain from the anxiety that I got from dealing with her. And I, I don't get that. And I have done a lot of inner child work while she's not able to ruin the progress by being in my orbit. And there is so much healing that has happened. So much healing. So it was, it's, it's really brutal on the day and it's so worth it afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. It can make you physically sick, right? Oh, absolutely, yes. Stress makes you physically sick and having someone that your nervous system has bonded to chemically because, you know, you're related to them and, the, and your system believes that part of your tribe. And, you know, as a herd species, we are always trying to get the approval and acceptance of our tribe. Yeah, it does. To have someone that close to you actively work against you, that is the kind of thing that you're taking a lot of risk leaving that in your orbit. That's a, an incredible assault on the nervous system. And you need to think carefully about whether or not maintaining that relationship is worth the damage that it's doing to your body and your mind and your soul. Yeah. And the fact that you tried or allowed her to keep trying to come back to contact you for five years, I mean, it just shows the strength of that, doesn't it? Because it's, it's obviously something that we all yearn for is connection with our, a beautiful connection with our families, you know, like that's, that's the goal, isn't it? And I don't think that many people really probably do have that for some reason, you know, the way the world is, it's like, feels like most people don't have that and that's what we're all craving. So the fact that you allowed that, cause a lot of people would just go bang, that's it. But you, you were there for five years saying, I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance, you know? So it's yeah, obviously... Yeah, and that five years wasn't the total. Like, she, I had her in my life for the whole time. It was only that last five years where I attempted to put in boundaries. Right. So I, I attempted to get us... I, t I tried so hard to get us to a point where we could engage and stay in each other's life. Like, I... You know, I've never been the type to ask for anything. I don't, I wasn't a, you know, a high requirement sort of an adult. I was extremely self-reliant. So it's not like I was asking for money or expecting free rent. I didn't live at home or anything like that. I was very, very self-reliant. And so really all that was needed for her to stay in my life was just 
just don't send pages of abuse. That's it. And yeah. I tried to hold that for five years. And it just, and the connection was just never made. She just didn't, wouldn't, was not prepared to engage with me without the constant berating and the criticism and the threats and the manipulation and all that stuff. And I just had to understand that this is, this is what it's like. And I think many people are very afraid of what the family will think if they cut off a parent like that, because most people, I mean, Jesus, just defriending someone on Facebook is a big deal these days, right? So actually cutting off a parent and that, that scared the crap out of me too. I was, I was pretty sure that I, I was risking losing some family members when I made this call, but it, for anyone who has a judgmental opinion about someone that's had to cut off a parent, you need to understand that the chemical bond between parent and child is so unbelievably strong that if the person has taken that level of action, it must have been so bad. It must have been so freaking bad for them to take that step. I always think when I find out that someone is no longer talking to a parent, I never think, oh, that's such an ungrateful child. I always think, holy shit, something huge must have gone down for them to break that bond because that is a deliberately from an evolutionary perspective, unbreakable bond. And if someone has taken the, like taken it to the point where they have to protect themselves in that way, you need to understand that what went down was so brutal. Yeah, and is it the same for your mum with her other relationships? Is she like this with other people as well? Um, she is difficult with people. She's, I've never, I've never known her to target other people with the vehemence that she targeted me except perhaps my brother i wasn't there for all of his childhood i moved out as soon as i turned 18 I moved out um, two months after my 18th birthday and he's seven years younger than me so he was with her alone for a few years i've heard some stories that indicate it did not get better but i can't speak for him so i know i know that it was still horrific but i i wouldn't say whether or not it was as bad as it was for me yeah. I just know that typically with narc parents, there's like a golden child and a scapegoat. And there's, you know, one they try to be favored by and one that they really target. And I know that I was, I got targeted pretty hard. Yeah. What sort of mindfulness practices do you personally use to help yourself get through the week? Personally, I do a lot of inner child work. I am super kind to the part of me that is kicking up when I experience any type of anxiety or, or stress in the system. So a lot of inner child work. I always have a coach. I am never without support for many reasons. One, just because the, the speed at which you can make progress and live dreams and achieve goals and all the rest of it is just like you quantum leap when you have someone actually moving you forward because you don't get caught up in the day to day as much. Like you're, there's someone always focused on your progress. And that makes all the difference. So yeah, I have support. I see, I always, I typically have more than one coach at a time. So I use one for feminine sovereignty. I use one for healing. I use another for different style of healing, like belief reconstruction and emotional body replacement. I meditate from time to time. I do a fair amount of yoga. Uh, I have an altar in my room and I spend time there. It's, I take care of me every day. And that's the level that is, required and even even taking care of me every day and being supported sometimes old bits of coding still win sometimes old default settings still win 
but I mean, humans are the most layered onion you can imagine. And it is a, you know, we come here to evolve our soul on this particular round of earth school. And the idea that you're going to smash out all your trauma recovery in 12 weeks is just naive. Yeah. And are there any books that you would recommend something that has been life changing in a book? Yeah, I don't usually recommend books just because they're read with the conscious mind. And if you haven't been able to live your dreams yet, the problem isn't in the conscious mind. It comes down to your subconscious programming and you would need a reflector for that. So you'd hire a coach. Having said that, if at this point you're not like emotionally ready for that and you just want to read some stuff, I would really recommend Mastin Kipp's book, Claim Your Power. Claim Your Power. So Mastin is M-A-S-T-I-N, Kip with two Ps. Um, he's the inventor of trauma hacking and one of my personal mentors. I've worked with him personally um, for several weeks in various parts of the world. And he is fantastic. Um, and he wrote this book. It's a 40-day guidebook. And so basically it gives you maybe just one and a half pages of explanation of a shift that you can make. And then a couple of questions, like a little bit of a workbook. There's like a video series that goes with it. And I, I mean, I did it even after working with him privately. I took, I did the book as well. And it's very practical, very accurate, very helpful. And if you actually take those steps, it will make a positive difference in your life. So for that book, I'll make an exception, but generally speaking, everything else is we, you know, in the industry, we colloquially refer to it as shelf help because you buy it, you feel like you did something and it sits on the shelf and gathers dust and does absolutely nothing to your nervous system, which is precisely why getting a Starbucks and going to the self-help section doesn't make you very nauseated. But the idea of hiring someone gets you all kinds of messed up because the system knows one of these things is going to make structural change to my nervous system and to who I am as a person and to what I can do in the world. And the other one is going to be very temporary entertainment. Oh, that's, that's an interesting way to see it. So you are Sarah Riley coaching. Tell us about what you're doing in your coaching business. Yeah. So it's interesting that we spent a lot of this conversation talking about the wonderful topic of narcissism. I started my coaching business doing trauma recovery because whenever you're coaching, you always work on helping people through things that you have already got through, right? Like you've got to walk your yeah. talk there a bit. You can't just read a book and then just say it to people. <laughs> Um, so I started off in trauma recovery and then my business migrated over several years to working with leaders, basically creatives, visionaries, a lot of actors, a lot of actresses, authors, entrepreneurs, people who have startups, social enterprises, anyone wanting to do really big things in the world and having any part of their nervous system or subconscious programming holding them back. So now I specialize in making leaders untouchable, three components to untouchable that you can amend your own coding at will, that you can communicate and have an empowered relationship with your nervous system so that you're not held back by things like panic and fear, and that you can redefine success your own way so that you're not wasting your life or burning yourself out working towards goals that are just going to be unfulfilling at the end of the day. So yeah, that's what I specialize in now. It's been a heck of a journey. I've moved through several niches and helped hundreds of people over the last few years, and it's been amazing, but I am probably the most excited about the work I'm doing now with leaders and visionaries. It's it's amazing yeah just taking people to a whole new level yeah well i mean your your whole reality is a projection of your perceived identity but who you think you are is effectively just an amalgamation of coping mechanisms so if you change the coding you change the projected reality and that's it's a lot simpler than people realize i won't say it's easy because it requires a bit of commitment on the part of the person to you know feel what it feels like to be a different identity in, an, in a different nervous system and that can be uncomfortable but if you're willing to overcome a bit of short-term discomfort, you really can have, be, and do anything you want. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. 
<laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved this chat. It's been very informative and yeah, I just love hearing about the narcissist and thank you for sharing all your personal journey. It's been really great chatting to you. It has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this chat. Oh, I just love Sarah and I reckon if you are looking to up level your life, she's definitely the person to help you with that. So please check out her socials. Having that first-hand experience of a narcissist in her formative years really does make Sarah the go-to coach with a deep understanding of how to reprogram ourselves for a massively better life. Here are the takeaways, so many. Number one, trauma is at its core the perception of disconnection from our support system. Number two, it is never your responsibility to cure a narcissist. Number three, overgivers, codependents and people with gaps in their self-worth are the perfect targets for the narcissist. Number four, if you come from a childhood of trauma, you may not recognize the red flags when meeting a narcissist as it may seem comfortable and familiar to you. Number five, triangulation is about isolating the target by recruiting others to work against you and isolate you. Number six, extreme self-reliance is a trauma response because as human beings, we are designed to be connected all the time. Number seven, a core underlying belief when in a relationship with a narcissist is I don't matter. Number eight, you get the lesson until you get the lesson. We never stop learning. Number nine, you can end up parenting yourself as badly as you were parented and that can continue your whole life. Number 10, narcissists don't experience happiness or joy. The closest thing to that would be a power surge from causing distress or controlling other people. Number 11, nothing you can do will change a narcissist. Number 12, the narcissist doesn't respond to any kind of emotion, so your best chance of working with them is respond with non-emotional short answers. Number 13, if you can do work on yourself, you can make yourself less of a target for the narcissist. Number 14, self-care is parenting yourself to really look after you. Number 15, reading changes our conscious mind, but changes need to be made in our subconscious mind in order to heal. And number 16, your whole reality is a projection of your perceived identity. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject and please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. 
I'll catch you next week.